Hello, hello. Hello. Now, I've arrived um, in this secret location, let's call it my bolt hole, um, with two fruit drinks because I'm upset. I just got drenched in the street. You know that thing that happens sometimes on American sitcoms where someone's standing on the street like in the Sex and the City? Correct. Yeah. And then just waiting across the road and then a car goes past and artfully drives through a puddle. So this sort of perfect way. Exactly. That didn't happen to me. The whole thing. Like, So I was texting you saying, on my way back now, where are you? And um, this perfect wave of water just slapped me in the face so suddenly and hard. I just went. Oh. You had to buy a then, seat. Then there were and there were these people standing around me. Like I definitely took the major impact of the splash, but then there were all these people all standing around just going, "Ooh, like ooh, nasty." And the thing is that it is not raining. Ooh. It's so not where it was in that puddle. Where did that puddle come from? I do not know. So it's some sort of toilet flushage from up the street oh, or something. Great. And I also, after years of like not quite having the right bag that would fit my laptop and all my work stuff, but also the stupid 98 pairs of children's underpants that I also haul around with myself, um, I finally bought this kind of bag. Look at it. Look how beautiful it is. It's green leather. It fits everything. I fit my laptop and it just got totally caught. Let me give it all a Trumpy and sniff. (laughs) Smells okay. I don't think it's sewage from the building on the real gross. Now, the good news is, Ooh. two bits of good news out of that for yeah. me. One is that you brought me a juice. Yeah. And I had nothing to do with that. And also, you having a real-life Sex in the City titles experience reminds me that I just watched Sarah Jessica Parker's new show. Oh, absolute bubble It's always like we planned that, isn't it? It's called Divorce. I live to provide you with segues. <laughs> um, look, I are you a Sex in the City fan? Ah, uh, look, I never really went out of my way to watch it. Me either. Um, when I see it, I think bits of it maybe just go, oh, but then, you know, there are some, I think, I think there are some good moments. See, I didn't like it when it was first out because I don't know, there was something in it that just annoyed me and I felt like it was as much as fantasy as Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, it's like, which you're, you know, <laughs> bad, bad. so I didn't like it being held up as like, you know, what single women's life is like or whatever. But, um, I must say over the years now I absolutely love it. And when I see it on telly, it's like. I'm bumping into some old friends or something. So, and I find it really funny and clever now. So, I don't know. I sort of somehow came full circle. Have you just a little defensive before? I don't know. It was weird. Maybe I sort of blew into that like, children. I'm not the Miranda character, okay? I'm not her. <laughs> so hard. Which one do you think? Kim Kitchen. Wow. Do you know, I went read to interview Julie Bishop, the kitchen cabinet. This is something that my producer, Madeline, and I love about a lot because. We we shot the episode in her Canberra flat, which is very tidy, and of course, after the Julia Gillard incident, has the fullest fruit bowl of any you know residence that I've ever um, walked into. And she had everything prepared, but um, I poked around in her video, you know, her DVD oh, yeah. collection. There's only two DVDs, the entire like collection of Sex and the City, and like the ten great speeches of all time. Oh, so, right! It's, like, it's awesome. the best sort of, yeah. Anyway, but um, I just was talking about this with Madeline, who was saying, are you going to ask her which one she'd be if it was Sex in the City? If she was on Sex in the City, I'm like, I'm not asking you a question. I'm a proper journalist. <laughs> anyway, but there was this moment when we were actually filming where um, I think I just ran out of things to, I just got discombobulated for a minute. And so I just said, oh, I noticed a DVD cabinet. And then I went, so um, 
uh, which, one, which one would you be? And she's like, oh, I don't know. Um, let me study. <laughs> I think she was going to be the kind of like the, the newer one, actually. I love how if you were more of a fan of Sex and the City, you could have almost told that anecdote Sex and the City voiceover style. Like, yeah. So I got to thinking, which one of the Sex and the City characters would the fun medicine be? <laughs> Um, so anyway, divorce. I quite like Sarah Jessica Parker. She's got a certain charm, yeah. I think, about it. Yeah. Um, and, but it's, I guess it's meant to be a comedy, maybe a black comedy. Uh, and I liked the first episode. The second episode just got darker, which was what I feared might happen because I thought, I'm not really sure where you're going to keep finding the laughs in this material because right. it's pretty sad and heartbreaking. Um, but the guy in it is, um, I think his name's Thomas Hayden Church. You know the film Sideways where they, yeah. he was the, not Paul Giamatti, the other guy. Right. Um, and I think he's great. And so they're a nice sort of ensemble and there's some good foil and what's characters. the story? They, they st- well, it's after they're getting divorced. The story is they, oh, I won't give you the setup, they're at a party. She just witnesses something and she decides, you know what, life is too short. My marriage is miserable. It's full of little things that anyone who's been married a long time can recognize, like looking at your partner just with sort of passive aggressive dislike down the table at a party or whatever. Or in a party, can I let the record show I have no idea what you're talking about? The opening shot, she's in the bathroom getting ready and he says something really passive aggressive to her. And as he walks away, she gives him the finger behind his back. Like just those sorts of things that you're like, oh. Look, I laughed aloud. But, um, anyway, um, she says, life's too short. I just, I can't keep going in this relationship. Uh, but then she sort of changes her mind, but then he's sort of wedded to the idea. And so it's just the back and forth of the right, okay. you know, process. So that's how it starts. So yes, they are getting divorced. They have two teenage children and it's, you know, comedy ensues, apparently. Um, but so, did you like it? I did. I liked it enough that I set my Foxtel IQ. And then last week I watched it. But I haven't really been looking forward to this week. So I, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to um, actually stick with it. So speaking of going a bit too far or like, you know, that thing where you're like, oh, this is funny. This is funny. Oh, this is too much on my own life. Or, oh, this is funny. This is funny. Or, oh, no, no, it's just depressing. <laughs> so I've been watching the first, the second series of Catastrophe. You know, oh, like Wayne, you told me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you end up watching any of that? I watched one episode. But this is the one where um, these man and lady have casual sex and she gets pregnant and, you know, comedy is used. Uh, but it's, the funny thing about it is is that it's it's really hardcore. Like, they're kind of brutal to each other, but then there's some really, like, they, they also really actually get along and get each other in quite a deep way. So it sort of pings you back and forth. But in the second series, you sort of, it, it, it ends, um, the first series ends with her going to labour. Right. And, um, and then the second series starts and there's like a little baby and you're like, oh, this is like two days later. But actually the second series starts about three or four years later. This is their second chara. And so that's they're, a great idea. So yeah, it is. It's really cool because you don't really quite get it at the start. And you're like, oh, wow. And then, so then you've got their families all reflecting on how they never thought it would last and you know, blah, blah, blah. But they, you know, there's some quite serious stuff going down too and they are being, you know, Again, quite brutal with each other, but with the added brutality that, you know, an extra three years of familiarity can really, <laughs> can really bring into the mix. So I'm finding myself just going, oh, oh, you can't do that, can you? Oh, apparently you can. <laughs> so, so enjoy it, though. Funny. Um, hey, uh, you put on a delicious spread on Sunday night. Oh, I'm so just, just let me tell you. So Saturday night, 
Um, I've hatched a plan to go on a play date on Sunday Arvo at a mutual friend of ours place. Um, we decide that we'll hook up some people to go to the pub for dinner because there's a very kid-friendly pub um, near our place. It has a kid-sized study. Jokey. You see what I did yeah. there? Um, no, no. <laughs> pub is booked out. So Crab goes, oh, I'll just plonk around to Chateau Crab. Um, and so we do. But it turns out that there's like about, I don't know, 25 adults and maybe 30 children there. We just got a little bit overexcited about inviting people. And now I said to my husband on the way home, if that had been me with that many people coming around, I would have needed a month's notice. The week leading up to it, I would have been in tears every single day. <laughs> the day of, I would have just been an inconsolable wreck. And then the next day, I would have been the cranky bitch from hell cleaning up. And you seem to just pull it off with about five minutes notice flawlessly. And the food was unbelievable. Well, the secret is if you've got two or three really good salads, you can pretty much, you know, stretch the rest of it. Yeah. But then you had those prawns in the butter sauce and you had the well, I'm not, beef sauce stuff. Well, I'm not. They were Jeremy doing that. So, right. like, I don't actually count them as part of the significant preparation. All the highlights, all right? It's sort of like all the meat. I don't know. Barry there's meat. Wow. The big thing, though, was just closely. Like, like, I <laughs> well, we both did things that we're good at. And, right. you know. It's extremely good, actually. I was having a conversation with someone at the table going, I know Crab gets a lot of the credit for being the good cook in his house, but uh, Jeremy is no good. He is very good. And he's a bit kind of like, he's a bit um, mission um, exclusive as well. Like, so he'll go, he'll do one thing and just like work it until it's just perfect. So the man can make the greatest roast potatoes. I don't, you didn't oh. get any because oh, he's, yes. oh, he's yeah. taking them off from the yeah. plates. Yeah. Uh, those kids went through their first like a pack of locusts. There's <laughs> about like half a roast potato left. Um, but yeah. And you know, the secret of the great, the great roast potato is you cut them into chunks and then you parboil them. That's right. Until they're a bit, yeah. Until they sort of almost, you know, bits of them falling off yeah. and then you drain them till they're nice and dry. And then you shake a bit of, um, you use semolina flour um, oh, on the wall. Oh, okay. And that just sort of makes them even drier. And also oh. it basically creates more crumbliness and surface area to soak up the fats that you'll need to make a very good roast potato. Well, do you know but, what I do to do that? Sorry, just at this point in the cooking, not semolina flour. I get the parboiled potatoes, I put them in a Tupperware dish, and then I shake the yeah. CK out of it. Also, a great take. Yeah. And also um, very good if you're dealing with a uh, celiac or gluten-free person who can't deal with semolina or flour. But you can also use rice flour and get a similar result. And then just duck fat or olive oil. Olive oil. But I mean, you know, duck fat has its um, major fans, obviously. Uh, not not so much from the duck community. It's just more than a cardio unit at Prince. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But uh, a good thing to do is if you're cooking them in olive oil... um, preheat the oil till it's smoking hot in the oven and then you just get a bit of like it just sort of it seems to stop things from sticking quite so much because the oil's hot when it goes in the forest and then you just like roast them at a high heat and just keep shaking and moving them um so that the crunchy bits sort of end up being all over the potato and now your salads were from neighborhood right Right, yeah, so Hetty McKinnon's new cookbook, Neighbourhood, it's the sequel to Community, which I don't think anyone will mind me um, revealing that you've become an obscenely obsessed oh, yeah. post-it mar- note-marking freak about. <laughs> and now, please they don't like to do it. Yeah. So um, I made two salads. These were the first things that I made out of that book, although I've spent quite a bit of time. I've even put some post-it notes in, just taking 
So touching, doll. So one of them was um, broccoli, zucchini, cannellini bean, radish, herbs, and then with a dressing that is completely bonkers. You get like, a, you know, heaps of capers, like about a third of a cup, and rinse them off and then smash them up in a mortar and pestle with three cloves of garlic. Smash, smash, smash. And then you melt some butter in a pan, put in this smashed up mess of capers and garlic and sort of just simmer it like you're basically sort of gently cooking it. And then you add oil because, of course, there's not enough saturated fats going on in there already. And then zest and juice of one lemon. And it becomes like this. So it's like a, a banya powder, that kind of um, fabulous dish where you've got this sort of buttery, capery sauce, lemony sauce, and then you just dip sort of crudite and stuff into it. But this is turned into a salad dressing and, and you char grill the broccoli and the zucchini. So you've got this smoky, salty, sardine. Broccoli is good, don't you reckon? So great. Yeah. Um, I would never have thought of char grilling it because I would have thought it was maybe a bit thick. Yeah, but actually yeah. it gives you such a lovely yeah. result. Um, Jeremy makes a really good salad that is um, that is raw broccoli. And I just think, oh, but yeah, you're not quite right for raw, but actually... So you just break it up into reasonably small florets and you dress it with yogurt, lemon juice, um, and then you have um, some raisins and some thinly sliced red onion and some toasted almond slivers. Ah, so good. Do you know what I particularly enjoyed Sunday night at your place? Like <laughs> my two-year-old who calls you Annabelle Crab. Yes. Now when he goes, nan, 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 and I ignore it long enough, he goes, Animal crab, animal crab. Really? Yeah, I, I love didn't that. Know. I love That's that. why he was running around getting yogurts off you and yeah. ice cream. I gave him a lot of yogurts. Thank you. I'm like, if you can take the trouble to pronounce my entire name, you can have as many yogurts as you want, kid. I love how I also then at one point, um, Jeremy had gone and got some of those like little ice creams, you know, like oh, those yeah. little cones with the, you know, and uh, I gave them to James, your, you know, tiny child, to, to distribute to the other children. Oh, like he was ever sharing. Well, I think some of them got out there anyway. Yeah, then he came back for and said, um, Annabelle Crab. And I said, yep. And he says, I've run out of ice cream. So I'm like, well, oh, that was the plan. And he's like, there's another box. I saw them. There was as well, like at the top of my freezer. And he's like, but I can't reach them. So from that, I deduced that he had not only, you know, computed where the rest of the ice creams were, but he had made a solo attempt to recover them. Oh, they ended. Oh, my God. I kept spying him stealing a lot of, you know, he was eating just crazy amounts of food that night and everything as well so every every adult there's just going who's that kid eating the you know salad yeah <laughs> I know. it was just bizarre we went to a um friend's uh kid's fifth birthday party my friend melanie and she did this really cool thing where when the cake got cut they had a time-lapse camera and so they had they had like a minute of kids coming and getting cakes oh, yeah. and my four-year-old he really likes flakes and it was this she did an incredible job that it. it was a jungle cake mm. so it was green and jungly on the outside and the flakes were like logs and stuff mm. and then when you cut it it was um three layers of sponge a brown one a green one and a um yellow one wow it's an oral. and it was the most delicious cake too um anyway um the time-lapse camera so I could see how many times the four-year-old went out to the cake and stole flake off it as people were distracted. It must have been about eight times. Oh, <laughs> Get on me up. That's just dirty pool. Oh, was... Anyway, it was very funny. What four-year-old thinks that's going to happen to them? Thanks, Mum. <laughs> exactly. That's all right. Um, hey, I did a bit of experimenting with a recipe out of your cookbook. Did you know? Yes, I did. Um, so you know you've got a recipe. It's 
spiced cherry eaten mess. Oh, yeah, that was made for Julie Bishop at the place. Is it really? At the day where I shamefacedly another, after. Another stage Another stage So like, no, 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 we just got like neck damage from yeah, you know, the arsenal exactly. backs. <laughs> um, so you've got spiced cherry eaten mess and I've got a recipe um, that a friend of mine made up like maybe 20 years ago, which is a sort of like a tiramisu, but instead of coffee, it's tinned berries and you dip the sponge finger biscuits in berry juice and it's in coffee. Yeah, it's really good. Anyway, so I sort of combine your part of your recipe with part of that recipe. So you've got a section where you drain the pitted tins of yeah. cherries yeah. and you reserve the juice. Yeah. And so then you put that on the stove with um, star anise, cinnamon, yep. a bit of orange peel, a bit of lemon juice, yep. um, can't, bit of sugar. Can't remember what else. A little bit of sugar. Yeah. yeah. Vanilla. Vanilla. Um, vanilla beans. Um, and so you sort of give that a bit of a juice till it infuses a bit. So then I dipped the sponge biscuits in that. And then I, for the sort of layer of creaminess between the soaked sponge biscuits, I used um, cream cheese and beaten egg whites and some sugar. And then so you beat the egg whites and then you beat the cream cheese. You beat so you just soften up the cream cheese. Yes. Beat up the egg whites till they get a bit peaked. Yeah. Not so that enough to be like meringue. Whack a bit of sugar in there as well. Combine it with the softened, you know, room temperature cream cheese. And do you have to fold that in or like mold it? Yeah, because otherwise it gets a bit lumpy. So yeah. you just need to give it a good gentle zhuzh and have it at room temperature. And then layer of that, and then yeah. some more sponge biscuits. So do you use the pony? Yeah, I thought about that because that's what's in your recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because I like the taste of cream cheese, yeah, with cream cheese. Yeah. And then on top of it, toasted flaked almonds and crumbled up flake. And you, oh, and the actual, gone by the time. Oh, the anyway, I forgot to say the actual cherries get folded through the cream cheese mixture as oh, well. Nice. So wow, that sounds delicious. Yeah, it was quite tasty. So you're bringing me a bit of leftovers. That's awesome. I thought about it, did you? And then I just for how long? Then I ate it. <laughs> um, no, apropos of nothing, I um, ran into Fran Kelly this morning. And she was like bustling along through the uh, um, uh, main, you know, uh, atrium of the ABC. And she said, oh, Annabelle, great, great. I've been trying to get in touch with Lee, but you'll do. I'm like, that happens to me a lot. And, yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, she said, so anyway, um, Lee's coming on, on the party room, you know, their podcast um, that her and she and Patricia Carvelis do. <laughs> I said, oh, great, great. And she said, so anyway, um, I just want to know um, – I'm going to ask her to sing because I sing at the end of the podcast. And um, and I just thought, what sort of things would she like to sing, do you think? And it was like the greatest, most golden opportunity. <laughs> oh, gosh. I say, well, Annie hardly ever allowed to sing on our podcast. <laughs> no. So but- Franny must have then, she probably rang me five minutes after yep. that, must have reminded her because she was in her car. So she, you must have seen her as she was leaving. So she's rang me and she started, and I'd already decided, a few people had said to me, you're going to sing with a friend of the podcast. I just thought, no, I'm too busy. I can't have time to think about it. I just need to quickly look it over and not. So I felt terrible because I felt like a broke little friend's heart. Oh, because you, 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 you I said, no, yeah. I, oh. uh, she said, what do you want to sing? And I said, I just, I can't, Fran. I'm only doing it because I love Fran so much. I've got so much on this week. Um, anyway, so I, I just felt um, bad. Oh, <laughs> and so now that I hear that you had that conversation. Well, no, I've sort of thought about going, well, oh, I don't know, you know, um, Fran, what does she love? Oh, Björn, <laughs> Mongolian throat. She loves Led Zeppelin. It just was like such a wide open goal for just such epic cruelty on my part with such little effort, you know. I was just. You could have also said, you know what Sales loves? A surprise sprung on her. 
So you should be writing my material, really. Yeah, exactly. But uh, um, anyway, so there you go. You, you're going to make to make it through unmolested. Hey, um, we were both in... Oh, the reason, sorry, if anyone's wondering, how come the, these two uh, bags were banging on about the first two American presidential debate and the single seat was because we both happened to be traveling at exactly the same time as the debate was on. We crossed in the air. Crossed in the air. You coming home from Melbourne and me going to Melbourne yep. for the day. Um, so we sort of only caught snippets of it, so not much to talk about. But what we do have to talk about is what we did in Melbourne. Oh, yeah. So I um, I sent you an email saying, oh, God, I can't wait to tell you about the morning that I've had. So I went um, to moderate a breakfast at the family law conference. Anyway, and it was... Women in law, you know, like you get invited to these things that are like women in X, women in Y. Anyway, I was sort of nearly a woman in law because I did have a law degree, so I thought, all right. And the panel was um, the outgoing um, Chief Justice of the Family Court, a woman called Diana Bryant, who is fabulous, so interesting and clever, and, yeah, you know. And um, uh, Marilyn Warren, who is the um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in um, uh Victoria, and um, the new federal sex discrimination discriminator. Discriminator, yeah. <laughs> sort of the opposite. The discriminator. <laughs> Not that thing. <laughs> hey, what do you do for fun? I'm the discriminator. I'm the <laughs> Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, so it was a really great session. But the best thing about this, this function was that at the table where we were sitting for five minutes before the, you know, uh, event started at, you know, 7.15. What is it about, like, women in things? Always freaking breakfast. It was just like, <laughs> wow, women, women in anything are just like, really? I would have been there like seven? Yeah. That's not practical. Um, but anyway, um, everybody was there looking very happy. But there were these three elderly ladies, and I sort of, I, I couldn't keep my eyes off them. They were at our table, like sort of head table, I suppose, where all the speakers were. And they were kind of like eating their birch and muesli and just kind of among themselves and they were just having such a lovely time in each other's company but I was thinking who are you because every now and again like someone would come up to them and it was obvious that they were quite sort of distinguished but I didn't really recognize them anyway it turns out that they were the the um three judges of the family court from when it was first established in 1976 right so they had the founding chief justice um Elizabeth Evatt um who set up the family court, and these two colleagues of hers were uh-huh. called Peg Lusink, who was 94, and um, Josephine Maxwell. And there were such interesting women. They were, like, all really still kind of super sharp yeah. and with these incredible recollections about what it was like to set up a new jurist in them, like in 1976, so it's just sort of... And um, Peg was saying that she got the call from the Attorney General, you know, saying, oh, we're going to make you a judge. She thought it was one of her mates winding her up, so she's like, "Oh, sure you are." <laughs> anyway, but they, they just—I really didn't get to talk to them for that long. But um, they were talking about um, setting up this new court, and they were determined that it wouldn't be um, very formal; that it would be really human kind of um, experience for people to have. And so they, their first courtroom wasn't really a courtroom at all; it was just like this room, and no one could ever work out who was the judge and who was the. So it kind of got a bit formal again um, after that. But it was just made me just think about these incredible women and mm. the stuff that they just built out of nothing. Yeah. Um, that is, and also the fact that that's quite recent history. I also yeah. find amazing. 40 years. Oh, that's it. 40 years ago. Incredible. Um, I did a couple of, in- I also um, was on a, a MC to panel at that conference, which was I thought really interesting too, about whether the family law um, court is time for reform. 
But um, in my free time in Melbourne, I did a couple of interesting things. One was I went to see, there's an exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria called Victor and Rolf. Oh, um, you yeah, are such a super fashion-related anything, aren't you? Totally love it. Um, went to have a sticky bee. It was funny because I was thinking how much I'm into that stuff and love it and how little I can be bothered on myself. <laughs> like, I love looking at it and I got no interest in actually applying it. Um, it was actually, I didn't enjoy it as much as when we saw Isabella Blow because it wasn't, the work's not quite as beautiful. It's more sort of avant-garde. And yeah, yeah. Sort of a bit bit out there. That's a great name for a label though. Victor and Raw. Oh, fantastic, isn't it? Isn't it? Like, yeah, I always think about like how many potentially great um, fashion partnerships just never got off the ground because they're like mudflap and nerf. So they like, is, I'm sorry, mudflap and nerf. No, it's just not going to fly. I don't care how pretty your ideas are. Mudflap, out of here. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, NERP is spelled K-N-E-R-P in my brain. Just in case you're just oh, mud flap and NERP. Yeah, that's K-N-E-R-P. Yeah. Fantastic. Sometimes, yeah. It just makes it so much better. Yeah. Yep, I think so. Um, that's probably why you're a writer because, see, that written down, if you hadn't said that, some of the joke would have been lost. If it written down, you would have got that full. Spelling is important. It is. Some yeah. spellings are funnier than others. Yeah. That's like we were, you and I, interacting with somebody yesterday whose surname was Magic, M I. M-A-M-A-M-A-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-T-
And the guy just said, oh my God, this is flying off the shelves. And, you know, I've heard people who read it saying, oh my God, it just makes me want to kind of punch the air. And um, so I'm about halfway through it. And there are certainly parts of the book where, like, she's so, like, she's, she's so furious, you know, and so the way that she tells um, her stories are so fired by this kind of sort of outrage-driven um, cogency, I suppose, which is quite, you know, I really love reading and seeing women in that flight mode, yeah. you know, where they're just like, right. And I think that, like, that is always one of the great parts of that speech of Julia Gillard's because she kind of, like, I think had been just rolling her eyes about all of those comments and all of that behaviour um, right to the point where it all just kind of like absolutely spilled out of her and it was so was so cooked by that stage that it was perfectly formed. You know, like the the absolute cold cogency of her language in that speech is, is one of the most impressive things about it because you didn't have, you know, a note in front of it. Right. Um, and so um, the bits about Clementine Ford's book that I like the most are, you know, there's some very kind of cogent ranty bits. I mean, it's 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 a rant, like it's not a sort of researched here where right. you know, 90% of women in Iceland do this right. or whatever. Like, and at some parts I feel like I could use a bit more of that um, because if you're pitching a whole book that's a rant, it's got to be like you've got to work pretty hard to mm. um, contain the interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I actually think that um, the my favourite parts of the book so far is when she just writes about what it feels like to be a teenage girl. Like I've just, it's really good. Um, she writes about you know her body and what she felt like in her body being, as she says, you know, too tall and you know, um, not feeling like she was sort of connected to the earth. She was in this sort of strange body that she didn't really love or feel comfortable in. And anyway, like it's just. It's really intelligent and very um, frank, but also just it just captures something about adolescence that's um, really fascinating. She does it beautifully, and, and like that's to this date and point in the book. Book, I think you know that's the bit that I found myself most absorbed in. What, what do you say? Are about halfway through? About halfway through? Yeah. Okay. I'm about halfway through Bruce Springsteen's memoir, Born to Run. That'd be pretty similar, I guess. <laughs> just to be that. Also, an incredible <laughs> reflection on being a teenager. No, um, look, I'm not. I'm not a Bruce Springsteen fan. The oh, only reason I send him out, out, get out, really, this office. I do. Yeah. Wow. Massive. One of the most exciting moments of the 2008 election campaign that I was in attendance at bits of um, in the US was uh, I went to see a campaign event that was Obama and Springsteen, and it was in the sort of like this sort of mall in. Cleveland at sunset yeah. and anyway I rang Jeremy I'm like so anyway I'm just um, <laughs> I'm in Cleveland I'm doing a, like a one woman drive across the midwest of you know and um oh yeah uh, and anyway Bruce Springsteen's just coming on stage so I've been going it's just like it was the moment I think at which he probably I think it. when you hang up he probably just gave the singer at the phone yeah no good I think it would be one of those moments but it's Springsteen <laughs> oh so interesting um look I picked it up because I you know Pretty much the only songs I can sing would be Born in the USA and Born to Run. Uh, I read that it was a really good piece of writing and I know that he is a good lyricist. So I thought, okay, I'll have a look at this. It is ex. I mean, if you're a Springsteen fan, you'd be just lapping it up. Um, 
he has got a really unique voice and he's making me, I can really visualize this where he's grown up in sort of yep. you know, Jersey and that whole vibe. And he also, he just loves music so much. And so that makes me like him because he's just so, you know, um, so into music and talks about music really well too and just has so much love. And he just seems like a really nice bloke. Yeah. He's, I think he's fascinating. And he's kind of this misunderstood figure in a way because, um, you know, he was, he's been sort of co-opted for um, uh, Repo- Republican campaigns. Yeah, he's pissed up. born in the USA. Right. Yeah. And, and, of course, born in the USA is like a much darker kind of, um, if you read yeah. lyrics, it's not really about, you know. It's about, um, you know, what, what says the Marines say? What do they say? What, what's that yes. Marine thing? USA? Well, I don't know. No, it down. You were you all that sort of. Okay. What was your childhood like, Lee? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, that sort of rah, rah, rah America stuff. That's not what that's on. No, not at all. And he's this kind of, I read this absolutely fascinating profile of him in the New Yorker. And I just, I've just Googled it and it's, um, it's called um, Bruce Springsteen at 62 by David Remnick. And. Now, I actually, now that I, I mean, I can't remember exactly what made me like, love that profile so much, but it was a bit about um, about his relationship to wealth and success and because um, he didn't sort of grow up with much. No, not at all. And, um, and it's just, it was just like so reflective and interesting and made me just think he was such an interesting guy. So oh, um, I think you, just, you probably enjoy it more than me if you're a fan, but it is definitely a well-written celebrity memoir yeah. and um i'm just trying to think if there's been anything sort of unflattering no, no this is hugely unflattering but it's revealing like you know you and i talk about it's got to be revealing it feels like it's revealing so um that's a good one just one other quick thing before we go that i re- watched and really liked i watched a documentary called hero dreams of sushi um which is about well, it's a guy in Japan. He's in his 80s. His name's Hiro. Um, he runs a sushi restaurant. It's the only, like, he's the only three-hatted Michelin chef in um, Japan. So it's in a subway. It only seats 10 people. It's, like, really looks about as low rent as this often. Yeah, no offence, love. Yeah. If there was more raw fish around, him, might put things up. That's right. Um, and he's just d- dedicated his whole life to making the perfect sushi. It's like, it's very Japanese where it's just a really small thing done to absolute perfection. But I must say, watching the whole thing, I kept thinking, I'm just desperate to go there and eat that sushi because I kept looking at it thinking it was just the same shot over and over again, which is patting the rice into a little sort of wedge, chucking the fish on top, brushing it with a sauce, dishing it out. And I would think, well, how delicious can that be? Like, right, yeah. So so it's not some sort of, you know, fancy balls of sea urchin. Nah. It's, well, oh, there was some stuff like that, but it's all in the quality of the, a lot of it looked sort of recognisable to me as sushi, mm. but um, it was all in the, all in the quality of the rice. And so in the doco, they interview the dude who's the rice dude and Hiro, the sushi dude, is going, there's nobody on the planet who knows more about rice than this guy. And they can have this. Just seeing that person who's just the Incredible. Um, and then there was the guy who was the tuna guy who would go and he was, and they were all, all these people that Hero had as his suppliers were all like equally as freakishly I only dedicated. for Hero. I'd, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the tuna dude was like, they're at the um, docks in the morning and all the big tunas are being laid out on the ground. The tuna guy's going around with a torch. He's just, some of them, he just would look at the flesh and walk away. Some of them, they'd cut off a bit of the tail and he'd rub it between his fingers and look at it with the torch. Anyway, his, his attitude was, um. 
there is only one tuna here that is the best. That is the one that I take for Hero. And so it was actually just the most remarkable. The dude, Hero's son, who was in his 50s, shot of him. He was smoking the seaweed. Um, you know, the I'd be smoking seaweed if that was that guy's <laughs> son as well. I'd be like, what? I'm not perfect, Dad. Look how I get used to it. So the guy who's got a restaurant for 10 and only is interested in one tuna in the entire world, I don't want to be that guy's son. <laughs> it was just like, yeah. I got it, nine out of 10 on my maths. Yeah, completely. Well, that was sort of the vibe. So the son, oh, no. the eldest son who had to take over the restaurant, I mean, Dad's never retiring until he drops dead. So this 50-year-old son who clearly, he's done, he's been in his apprenticeship for 30 years. He's still out the back over the smoker doing the seaweed. Although by the end of it, they said the father had now entrusted that son to go to the markets and do various things. But with Torchman or he is the new Torchman? No, Torchman's his own dude. He runs right, his own okay. business getting okay. one tune. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like it was close. Him on the economies of scale operation. It was a bit. No, absolutely <laughs> not. It was a very. Uh, I thought it actually didn't quite stretch to make an entire doco. I'm yeah, I thought that after the first generation you've been talking about, I'm like, whoa, yeah. tell me more about that rice guy. Shiny and a piece of fish being thrown into a piece of rice. It's a sushi. Oh. But exactly as you've seen it before. Yeah, that is exactly what it was like. I thought what makes this remarkable is the only sense that you really can't get any sense of through a screen. So. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of equal parts puzzling and fascinating. It felt like it would have been a good 7.30 story, but it was a bit... Oh, great. You're going to give it six and a half minutes. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's about what it was worth. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, I just felt sorry for the dude's sons. One of them had gone and opened his own other restaurant. Yeah, burgers. I'm out of fish, man. But, yeah, it was Hero. I mean, man, what a unique character he was but it didn't it certainly did make me want to try the sushi just because I couldn't believe yeah. but you know as my husband said to me your palate probably wouldn't be good enough to tell the difference between a $10 piece of sushi and a $300 piece of sushi so being my... the finger behind his back <laughs> no, it was true in that instance it was actually true so there was no fingers required um no <laughs> It was, but I think there's, there's truth in that because I'd probably eat that and go, oh, that was delicious sushi, but I yeah. wouldn't be able to go, oh, it was the crafting yeah. of the, you know, but it, was the, it was the glancing torchlight across the arse of the tuna that made all the difference. <laughs> I don't know. The glancing torchlight across the arse of the tuna. Do you guys <laughs> like a good F title to me? Is it thing you do your tuna at <laughs> Just the arse. Remains, you know, no, it's the sort of thing that, that was the sort of thing that Hero did do, yeah. though. Like, because it, it was that was the level of they had octopus that they used to sort of they mushed up the octopus to make it really soft. Mm. They used to do that for half an hour, but now they do it for 15 minutes. So, some poor apprentice is in there and doing it like he's hand wringing washing to get the octopus oh. to the right consistency. Oh. Well, that's an entry level job, isn't it? And so, like, not half an hour is not enough on that side. No. Give us another 20 octopus tenderizer. So, Hero, wow. Okay. I, I weirdly enough, having having yeah. now been a jerk about that film, I know that I would actually quite like to watch it. Do you know what I think now as I walk out of your office? I'm going to have to walk out back mm -hmm. first. Yes, but now you... <laughs> no, I'm going to have to walk out back first because I'm worried now about you giving me the finger behind her back. <laughs> what do you think of that frosting? Have you ever done that, Jamie? I, I, I do not consent. You have. I mean, not consent. <laughs> to... Now, let me just, before you go, yeah. you really are nearly out the door, you yeah. monster. Show your host. So I got this car. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> that looks like it's from a listener. It's got a giant big blue wren on the front. 
This is a card from Maria who says, I'm an avid Chat 10 Looks 3 listener. I regularly tune in whilst I'm driving from mine site to mine site in the Pilbara. Oh, Phil podcast makes an otherwise dull journey most entertaining. We should give her that. Um, we should send her a copy of Heroes. What's the pressure that you wear about show me? It's a, uh, it's a, uh, a blue ren. It's beautiful. I knew it. I like how she didn't put two in because she knew I would have chucked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I sat, I was at a lunch the other day and I sat next to a CEO of an international business. He would have been in his mid 60s and he was a fan of the podcast. I, I'm sure my really? friends betrayed my surprise because he was so far out of our demographic. So, oh, I don't know. Hello, older gentlemen CEOs who are listening. Great to have you along, but won't be at all awkward next time you run into him again. <laughs> that's right. Oh my God. Are you actually going to retreat out of the door on that roller chair? Don't you reckon that'd be a cool exit? If I wasn't tethered to this thing by microphone, they'd probably think about it. It's still tied together, love. I, as, even as he said that, do you know what I heard? I heard the start of, do, 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 you know, for a time rock risky business. Oh, really? Yeah, like I feel a bit Tom Cruise, like I need to just go whoosh, out the door. Okay. Uh, All right, we'll another one for a visual medium, possibly. <laughs> 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 just take those 